Hello, and welcome to Gay for Horror, the show where not all the movies are gay, but I sure am. Um, <laughs> so I'm trying something out. I haven't quite done this in the past. Um, I've done movie blogs and things like that, but I really wanted to try to just chat about some movies that have come out or are going to come out uh, and just give you uh, a bit of what my thoughts are. I've been interested in finding, and I haven't quite found, although I'm sure there is one, um, a really consistent kind of new release uh, movie critic or movie respondent, if critic is a nasty word, um, movie respondent or character who is a queer person, but who's not necessarily only covering films from queer perspectives or films that have a queer angle. So, which is to say just like, I'd like to hear what gay people think about wide release new horror movies. And um, so I'd like to try to do that uh, in this context. So I'm going to try really hard. I've done really well all year this year, and this is actually part of why I was motivated to try. I've done really, really well about actually seeing every new release, wide release, especially wide release, but including some smaller independent films when they're available in the Midwest, uh, horror movies, uh, and and having thoughts and wanting to talk about them. Um, and I've seen, I really do think every one that's come out this year, and that just gets me to a point where I feel like I have a good enough set of information to make some remarks and not sound stupid. Um, <laughs> uh, so I'd like to try and keep doing that moving forward and give myself sort of the challenge to do that moving forward and then give you all some thoughts on what I thought about it and what interested me about it. I'm going to try to steer clear of doing too much um, I liked it or I didn't like it style things just because I feel like we could go back and forth and whether we like or don't like things forever. Um, and I certainly will address my level of personal enthusiasm, but if you liked it, that's great. If I, I didn't like it, that's okay. Um, but I think from both perspectives, you could still address what's interesting in the movie and that that is kind of the universal thing that we can all talk about. What I want to do too, hopefully, possibly in the future when there isn't a new movie, a new horror movie out on a weekend, I'm going to try really hard to do a kind of discussion like this about some sort of queer horror classic that I really like, not necessarily uh, a queer film, meaning a queer filmmaker or, or films targeting a queer audience, but just any film, any horror film that I just think queer people like a lot or I find especially queer or possibly a queer filmmaker, but not necessarily. Um, and those would be sort of what I'll do in off weeks when there isn't a new release horror movie, although we've been doing very well for ourselves. <laughs> we've had a new wide release horror movie in the U.S. Uh, every weekend for the last four weekends, uh, beginning with Child's Play, then Annabelle Comes Home, uh, then Midsummer, which is what I'm going to talk about today. Uh, and then next week we have uh, Crawl, which I'd like to talk about if I don't quit between now and next week. Um, I want to start, so anyway... I'm going to do a review. I'm calling it a review. It's really just a chat. Uh, I hope that's okay. Um, and hopefully this is interesting to you. So um, I'm going to talk about Midsummer today. Um, Midsummer is the new horror movie from Ari Aster, who directed Hereditary, which was, I think, many people's uh, favorite horror movie of last year, or certainly one of the most talked about horror movies of last year. Um, I loved Hereditary, and I, I've only seen it the one time just because... To me, it was so impactful and so uh, so tense to sit through, which is rare as someone who watches horror movies infinitely, uh, to feel so tense about a horror movie. I'm fairly comfortable watching horror movies at this stage of life. Um, 
But I found that one tense. I mean, there was one moment, and I don't want to say what moment, because I don't want to tell you what the moment is if you haven't seen the movie. Um, but uh, there is a moment, and it's the moment that you're probably thinking of if you have seen the movie, which is which is the sort of most significant um, um, uh, uh, redirection of the story that happens maybe in the first third of the movie. Um, a very strong catalyst for the last, you know, two-thirds of the movie. Uh, I think you'll know what that is. Uh, but the really, really difficult early scene, if you can read through that code. Um, I just remember watching that in theaters and at the end of that scene, um, like removing my thumb from my mouth <laughs> because I had fully like bitten on my thumb from feeling so tense from watching that movie, which I, I, it's not a common reaction. <laughs> I never had that reaction on record previously. Um, and I had like full like teeth indentations from where I had just, I think just from nerves bit on my thumb through that entire, uh, scene. Um, so that's representative of how I felt about Hereditary. And I, and I did really like it. I just haven't rewatched it or revisited it. Um, and Mid Midsummer is quite different. Uh, and I want to talk about why. So the way I want to structure this is I'm going to say everything I think I can say about Midsummer in the first half of this without spoilers, um, as if I'm talking to someone who hasn't seen the movie and I have seen the movie and here's what I could say to them about seeing the movie or whether they might want to see the movie or what the movie is like without spoiling it. Uh, then I'm going to physically ring a bell. <laughs> it's not a digital bell. It's a physical bell. And it sounds like that. Um, I'm going to physically, I did acquire a bell for this. So I think you can appreciate that. Um, uh, I'm going to ring a bell and then I'm going to switch into full spoilers, full discussion. Everything that I have to say to someone who has seen the movie, who I who I speak to, and they've seen the movie, and I get to tell them all the things I thought were really interesting, fully open to spoilers. So um, I could just tell you spoilers, but the bell makes it festive. Uh, so, so what I want to do, the first thing I actually want to do is address why I'm going to call the movie Midsummer. I'm not going to call the movie Midsommar or Midsommar, or I've heard many critics and, and, and internet personalities of various sorts who talk about movies, um, say, uh, versions of the Swedish pronunciation, and that's great for them. I, I don't speak Swedish, and I don't know that it is appropriate for me to try now at this, at this juncture of life. Um, and I have, I, have, I have sort of an anecdotal reason for why I don't want to say the Swedish incorrectly, which is that when I was an undergrad getting a film studies degree, doing what was, I think, my last semester of coursework in film studies, um... I took a course, which is actually ended up being one of my favorite classes I've ever taken. Uh, but the course is called Women Filmmakers of Europe. Uh, and it was a really great assemblage of films that I had seen none of and was totally ignorant of. And, and, and some of which are actually really still my favorite films. Uh, and, and certainly films that I hadn't been seeing a lot of in many of my other uh, film studies classes. And so it was just a really great, actually really unique semester for me. Um, but, you know, in the context of that class, I did have to watch lots of films in foreign languages that I don't speak. And I had to have an in-class discussion about them. And I had to figure out a way to talk about all of the titles of all of these movies, none of which were English, um, and figure out how to best and most delicately present myself as someone who is dumb as rocks and doesn't speak any other language besides English, uh, and, and come across as as not awful as humanly possible. 
Um, and I I learned in that experience that often just saying saying the English translation is the safest, least obnoxious thing to say. Um, P.S. Fun fact: uh, the professor of that class, bless her good heart, she was lovely and very smart and very sophisticated, and I'm sure a greater, better, smarter human than me. Uh, but she hated my guts. Not because I was a bad student, but because we were just differently oriented as people, and she was a very staunch, stern French-German woman, and I respect that, but I was, and still in many regards, am a camp gay boy from New York, and I just want to make everything fun, and she um, didn't didn't want to make everything fun, and so I don't think our temperaments worked well, because we were watching all of these dead serious um, European art films, and all I wanted to do is to just make everyone a little bit more comfortable and laugh. And I did make the class laugh quite a bit, but she never laughed. And so I really, the whole semester was just me trying to, to mutter, muster up my, some sort of like enthusiasm and care that would be recognizable to her, but in my own voice, which is, I think, a, a tad silly. Um, we had different impulses, and I only say this because it's relevant to the takeaway, which is this. So she didn't love me, um, because I think she thought I wasn't taking the class seriously, but I took the class very seriously, and I got an A-, and I did quite well. Uh, but I also just, when you present me with a very self-serious European art film, I do kind of want to make a little bit of a joke about it. Not because I don't love it, I actually loved all the movies, but just because it's like, when, when the room is so still and so quiet and so serious, I just can't help it. Um, but it was a really small class. There were only eight of us, and the other students in the class really didn't want to be there. It was really rough. It was a very slow go of a discussion, which is, by the way, in defense of myself, why my particular approach of trying to make people laugh helped. Uh, because people did laugh, and then they felt more comfortable to talk, and it actually helped the discussions. Uh, whereas if you're very serious, and you stare at people, and you glare at them, and you make them uncomfortable, they don't talk very much, and then everyone just sits there awkwardly, and that's no fun. Uh, the point being, she didn't love me, and that was okay, and I don't mind, but who you know who she really hated? Um, <laughs> there, was a, there was a student who sat next to me, and I learned some at some point in the middle of the semester that I think she hadn't turned in her midterm, and I only know this because as I would leave every class, I would notice her immediately burst into tears on cue and approach the professor in tears and say something, something, something about a delay or a reason why the midterm hadn't been turned in. And this went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I do think at some point she gave up trying to turn in the midterm and then perhaps just switched approaches. And her new approach toward the end of the semester was become a kiss-ass, which really, if you're a college student, is a full Hail Mary. Because if you haven't turned in the work and you know that pass-fail is really just a difference between whether the professor will overlook the absence of work and will, you know, whether they will care enough, uh, and, and whether they're willing to push the button that says fail. So I guess the strategy is you just be as nice and as as, as pleasant and, and, and as appreciative and complimentary as you can be, uh, hoping that they just won't have it in their person to push the button. Uh, but they mostly will. Any college student out there, they, <laughs> they almost definitely will push the button. This does not hardly ever work, I don't think, but I've seen people do it. And this student who sat next to me, she did it. Uh, she became a hardcore kiss ass. But the, the real important part is, this is sort of a long story. I'll get to it. I'll close the tab and move back to the original home base in a second. But um, 
But the reason, the one of the essential parts of her kissassness was she tried to aggressively over mispronounce the, well, she tried to accurately, <laughs> she, she actually was trying to accurately pronounce the French and German titles, thinking that would earn her points, um, as opposed to saying the dumb English translation. Uh, the problem is she didn't speak French or German and had never seen French or German. So her actual supposedly accurate pronunciations were just her chewing the syllables to death. And so we would have films like, so one of my favorite films last semester was um, Leontine Sagan's Girls in Uniform. I'm just going to say Girls in Uniform, right? So from the 1930s, a German film, it's brilliant. In German, it sort of sounds something like, and I'm going to fuck it up. So if you know if you speak German, I apologize. But it's something like, Madkian and Uniform. I'm going to just give that so you have a sense of what it's supposed to sound like. But this woman next to me, she would just sit there and she would say, oh, yes, you know, like in Madkian, you know, she would just choke on the syllables. It sort of sounded like a bad, offensive parody of German people. And she would do, you know, she did, there was a Frenchman called Coup de Foudre, which means lightning strike uh, in French. And, um, uh, and, you know, she would say, oh, you know, and I also appreciate it in Coup de Foudre. And she, <laughs> she turned into a full SNL parody of, of European people. And the point is that the professor did not like me because she didn't care for my sensibility. And that's okay. But um, she hated that girl way more because I would watch her facial reaction to this woman mispronounced the French and German and I may have been pronouncing it in English and she may not have loved that but she hated her so I <laughs> sorry I am going to say midsummer because I don't want to be that girl in the class choking on the words so I'm just going to say midsummer however it's pronounced in Swedish lovely I'm sure it's lovely and uh someone else can review it in Swedish I'm not that girl. Okay, so um, a few things I want to say almost preliminarily about this movie that I really think are almost about experience. Uh, one is that I really think you should choose the theater you see this movie in very carefully, which is to say that it is, and if you saw Hereditary, I think this came up with Hereditary too, because this, this Hereditary and this, they're both very stone-cold serious. There is humor. The humor is just really weird, though, and it's it's hard to attune to, and I think if you're a not great, not, um, not exceptionally well-honed uh, uh, viewer, I think people will kind of get off the, the sort of the, the rhythm. Uh, and I think the movies, because they're so serious and uh, kind of kind of ag aggressive or kind of uh, brutal in parts, I think you can get that weird thing happen where people are laughing uh, at the moments that are supposed to be serious because they can't quite catch the rhythm of the the sort of metaphorical music of the the way that the film is edited and put together. Uh, and and it's just gonna it's gonna happen. I mean, I'm pretty. I'm pretty okay with the the sort of uh, involuntary response of laughter. I think there is a kind of human uh, that is just so uncomfortable with moments of violence that they just involuntarily laugh as this way of like coping with the awfulness of the feeling. Uh, and if that person's in the theater, I'm okay with that. Um, but, you know, it's the ones that are, like, doing that thing where uh, they are 
aggressively laughing when they're supposed to be scared to show the people that they're with that they are not scared and create the feeling of superiority in themselves that they are unaffected and unbothered by the thing that's supposed to bother them and that you are bothered by and that therefore they are superior to you and everyone else who enjoys this thing. Those people I don't like. And if you are one of those people, no one likes you, so don't do that. Um, but, you know, I think I think you can get a troll effect. So um, the movie's playing in full wide release nationwide, and also because it's sort of the straddling movie where it's released by A24, which is mostly an independent independent studio, although they did, I think, self-finance this movie. Um, but it's mostly an acquisitions-based independent studio. Uh, it often plays in art houses or you know small theaters, but because it's a national release, it's in major chain theaters and it's in smaller art house theaters. So it gives you a pretty wide stretch of options. Like in Michigan, it's playing like in like five or ten. I don't know. It's playing in at least half a dozen places um, that I can get to pretty easily, uh, and and that's Michigan. Uh, so if you're in a larger city, I bet you have as many or more options. Um, and so I would just choose, you know, you can't, we can't possibly predict our, our, our futures. Uh, <laughs> but if you, if there's a theater that you have a preference for, because you feel like the people who go to that theater are probably possibly more inclined to take things seriously, uh, and, and can't, or not take it seriously, like self-serious, but just care about the movie and not want to like engage in, in, uh, fuckery and bullshit, um, to be frank, um, I would, I would, I would make the, make the choice to go to the theater that you think will best react to the movie and give you the, the sort of most honest and least, uh, least trolling kind of reaction. Um, I don't know what theater that would be, and I would never advise us to which type of theater that would be. I not to necessarily say that art house theaters will get you a better audience, because I've been to lots of art house showings of things where the audience is terrible, uh, and some of my worst <laughs> experiences with audiences are in art house theaters. Um, but uh, you know, even within multiplex style theaters or across art house theaters, there's a sort of spectrum of trust in terms of this is a good space people tend to be, you know, pretty a-okay about being good audience members here. Um, so I would make that choice with thought. <laughs> I wouldn't just do the next showtime. I would do, I would make the choice to go to the place you think will give you the best experience. I mean, I did that here and I had a great experience and, and the audience interactions, I'm going to talk about that in the sort of spoiler section, but the audience reactions I had were great and really interesting. And uh, I think, you know, very involuntary and kind of cathartic and, uh, not trolling at all. Um, and that's what you want. Um, some other things too, I would really, uh, if you have seen the trailer, then this doesn't apply to you. But if you haven't seen the trailer, I would advise you not to watch the trailer. And I have, and I will continue to probably have, and I'll let you know if this changes, but I have a full anti-trailer stance on most movies. Um, I don't like to watch trailers anymore. I think it just tells me too many things and things I don't want to know. I'm pretty good in terms of what what information I have uh, at deciding if I want to see a movie based on you know who the creative people involved with it are and just some still frames and a, maybe a, a one paragraph plot synopsis, if even that. Um, I, I feel like I make pretty good choices about what to see from from those descriptions. In this case, I knew it was Ari Aster's second film after Hereditary, which I did love. And so to me, it's like, I'm already going to go see that movie. And if you're a horror movie fan, 
you're definitely going to go see this movie, so you don't have to watch the trailer because you, 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 the whole point of the trailer is to sell you on the idea that you should see the movie or to make you informed about whether you want to see the movie. Now, actually, whether trailers do that or not is a whole other question. Um, because sometimes, sometimes they sell you a different movie that is, that, that is not contained within, within the feature that you're seeing. Uh, but the idea is it's supposed to give you the information to decide if you want to see it. And if you already want to see it, because you know Ari Aster from Hereditary, just don't fuck it up. I mean, if you don't watch the trailer, every moment of the movie is new visual information. And so at best, a good trailer ruins the first 30 minutes of the movie because it has to tell you the setup of where, you know, what's happening and, and what the problem is. And most screenplays don't get to the problem until page 30. So a great trailer that doesn't spoil too much is still giving you the first third of the movie sometimes. And, when it, it's just so fun if you've not if you've never not watched the trailer just pick a movie you really know you want to see like you know you're going to go see it and there's no chance you're not going to go see it just pick one of those movies and watch no trailers and then go and then see if that isn't enough of a reward for you because i you know i've just had such great experiences with um you know, I saw like that uh, Kenneth Lonergan movie *Manchester by the Sea*, which is about Casey Affleck taking care of his uh, like sister's kid, and I thought it was about a guy who was a superintendent for the first twenty minutes, and then I found out there was a kid, and it's new information. It, like it comes along and it's exciting. It's like, oh, oh, there's a kid. oh, he's going to take in a kid now, in you know, in minute twenty-five uh, of of the movie, uh, and. It, when you're in the theater, that's new information. It's not. It's not what you're waiting to happen. You know, it's not. It's not um, a sort of presumed future that you're going to encounter because you know what's going to happen because you've seen the trailer. It's just all new. Uh, and horror movies, especially, not knowing anything is so great because it's just every scare is new. The direction of the horror is unspecified. So like. Um, I had a great experience watching uh, Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan, and I think part of why I had such a great experience with it is I really just didn't know if it was a horror movie or how far it was going to go or if it was going to be some sort of, like, the fly situation where she becomes a swan. You know, the 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 the, the, the parameters really were, aren't defined or weren't defined for me as someone who hadn't seen any trailers because... I don't know what it is. I know it's a swan movie. <laughs> I know that Dolly Portman's in it. I know she's a ballerina. I don't I don't know if it's if it's a sort of metamorphosis or a supernatural movie or if it's just like I don't know. I have no idea. It's all a discovery. And when when you have that kind of a relationship to something where it's all a discovery, the range of possibility is just so much wider and so much more fun. So um, if, you know, if you haven't watched the trailer, I mean, my good advice is, is don't watch the trailer. Um, and if you've never tried not watching the trailer for a movie you really want to see, just try it once, because I think it's really fun. <laughs> um, uh, I don't really want to say too much about what the plot of Midsummer is, based on that description. So, I, I, you know, it's a movie about some friends, and uh, they go on a trip to Sweden, and then some things happen. That's all you need to know, and it's a horror movie, so you have you know you have a sense that those aren't going to be good things. <laughs> if not, it's if they don't go to Sweden and have a great time and come home just great and fine and peachy. Uh, so you know, I think that's all you really need to know. Um, in terms of how I felt about this movie, you know, not talking about the plot or spoiling anything. 
I'm going to compare it to Hereditary just because I feel like that's such an obvious way to do this. But, like, I think Hereditary was an extremely impactful, very intense, uh, really, really, like, razor-sharp horror movie. For me, I know other people uh, hate it, didn't like it, thought it was boring, weren't scared. But as I described, I did bite uh, marks into my thumb. So I was scared. I was honestly <laughs> scared and discomforted. Uh, it's very rare that I have a physiological reaction to anything, by the way. Um, I remember when I watched Jack Clayton's The Innocence for the first time, which, by the way, is one of my favorite horror movies of all time. It's a really great 1960s, very classy haunted house movie play, uh, based on Henry James's The Turn of the Screw. Um, with a, a screenplay partially written by Truman Capote starring Deborah Cards, just classy as fuck, you'll love it. Um, but when the first time I watched that movie, I actually had a spine tingle, and it was really exciting, because I, I think it was like 19 or something, and I remember thinking like, oh, that's why people say spine tingling, because like, I, I just felt for the first time, I was like, oh, my spine is tingling, it was really, it really affected me physically. Anyway, I don't usually feel physically affected, but in, in Hereditary, I did. Midsummer is a bit different, it's not, um... It's not quite a, a, a race to the finish. Uh, I think it's it's a fairly uh, contemplative sort of you know uh, meditative character drama with awful things in it. And I think that's a strong difference. And I think it, I think if you didn't like Hereditary, you might still like this movie uh, because it's I think it's there's a lot in it that feels in terms of DNA very shared where it the fact that they're the same filmmaker makes perfect sense. Uh, but there's also a lot of things about this movie that are decidedly very different than Hereditary. Um, and I really, I read an article where the uh, filmmaker, uh, Ari Aster, Sorry, Coke Zero. Um, the filmmaker, Ari Aster, I have uh, soft drinks and gummy bears. Those are my vices. Um, where the filmmaker, uh, Ari Aster, talked about um, his influences. And one of those influences was, uh, or actually, I guess many of those influences were uh, Powell Pressburger films, which particularly particularly uh, Black Narcissus and The Red Shoes. And I think that's actually a good reference, although I don't, I think this is way more intense than, than either of those movies. But something like that, uh, you know, if you don't know Paul Pressburger, they made really beautiful, um, just, I just, I just gorgeous, sumptuous, sort of mostly technicolor melodramas, um, which had often, as is the case in The Red Shoes, and uh, which also was a strong influence for Black Swan, by the way, in The Red Shoes and Black Narcissus, which is really my favorite, um, there's just really sumptuous, beautiful technicolor melodrama with just this like undercurrent of horror. Uh, and if you've never seen Black Narcissus, um, Go see Black Narcissus or rent it or whatever. Find it on the webs. Um, it's great. It's this really classy, beautiful movie um, with just nauseatingly beautiful cinematography uh, about nuns in the Himalayas. And it, and it's really good as that. Like, it really, it's a great, it's a great movie about nuns in the Himalayas. It's so beautiful. And then it gets like that last 20 minutes and there's this character named Sister Ruth and she's a novice and she's like adjusting to life in the Himalayas and she basically goes bonkers from sexual frustration and like draws on red lipstick and goes full vamp and then becomes sort of a violent, dangerous sort of like Caligari-like streak of blackness against the walls of the, of the, the convent. 
is real good. Um, you, but it's but it's really decidedly not horror in the sense of uh, a really intense. Um, oh, here's here's one way to say it. Like a one way that people often construct the idea of horror as in a horror movie as opposed to a movie that has elements of horror is that a horror movie for many people, although this is obviously debatable, is really structured around a kind of cyclical pattern of scares, right? So like it's a horror movie is a movie where there's a sort of cyclical pattern of scares where you're sort of waiting for the next scare. Um, that is not how I would define a horror movie, but take that as like a way of thinking about the difference between possibly like a mainstream kind of conventional horror movie, like a, say like an Annabelle Comes Home situation versus Midsummer and, you know, other films that are sometimes called like art house horror or often differentiated from, from mainstream horror. I think they're all horror and I think that's a, a failure of imagination uh, to, to call it like Midsummer, not say it's not horror, that's like elevated horror or art, art house horror or something other. I think it's a horror movie. I just think horror can look like different things. Uh, but this, you know, Midsummer, and in and, and reference back to Black Narcissus, it's like there's not a pattern of scares. It's not scare based. Um, it is a very intense personal melodrama. And then terrible things happen. <laughs> and then terrible things happen that are horrific. Um, and I think that's more the kind of movie that Midsummer is. So I don't think it's any less intense than, than Hereditary in some experience, like the total experience of it. But I don't think, like, I left Hereditary feeling very jolted. And I left Midsummer feeling more uh, kind of mud muddied in my feelings. And it's a way more of a... It's way more of a character drama, I think, than Hereditary was, which I feel like was, a, I think, still a very strong character-based story, but very much uh, the strongest part of that to me was the, the experience of intensity that it cultivated in terms of its really energizing, jolting uh, scare moments. So if you didn't like that, you might like Midsummer. But if you loved Hereditary, I think you'll also like Midsummer. Uh, what else can I say about this without spoiling it? I think one way to phrase this is, um, for me, Midsummer is ultimately, um, I don't think this is a spoiler to say, um, it's ultimately a drama about a difference of ideology or a difference of worldview amongst people being taken to its furthest and most extreme end which is to say that a large part of what is horrific in horror, I think, is uh, people who don't see the world like you uh, and whose sense of value is strongly differentiated from your own such that it can lead to terrible things or things that you find terrible and the realization that for another being, that thing isn't terrible. Um, there was, I think, I think one of the things, one of the strongest parts about the recent Child's Play remake, just to touch on it too, is uh, I guess if you don't want to know anything about Child's Play, uh, I guess you shouldn't listen to this next three sentences. But um, I think if you're not sold on the movie, these next three sentences might actually sell you a bit more, I think, maybe, possibly. Um, which is that my favorite thing about the Child's Play remake 
This is a new tab. We'll get back to the home base in a minute. Um, my favorite thing about the Child's Play remake, I'll always get back, I promise. Uh, my favorite thing about the Child's Play remake was, it was, um, they redesigned what makes Chucky a killer, and it's not a possession story anymore. It's a, a kind of a metaphorical uh, sci-fi story about a doll who has robotic properties, who is misprogrammed not to fear or avert violence, and who is also strangely programmed to bring pleasure to children, and watches children watch a horror movie and sees that it brings them joy and that they are laughing and excited by the horror movie and thinks it's a fun, nice thing to do to children to take a knife and scare them with it. And that's interesting because I think it gets at something that Midsummer also gets at, which is to say that a large part of how we think about killers or what makes something uh, interesting to us about killers is that killers are very often people who are differently, to use the phrase loosely programmed, whether that's you know robotically in the case of Chucky or uh, kind of neurologically in the sense of, of actual sort of killers who who either don't have an aversion to violence or don't uh, are not as physically repelled by the images of uh, by images of violence or or are just sort of willing to use violence as a means to an end in a way that most people aren't. I mean, in all of those stories, the thing that's scary is that there's some being that is willing to use something that we find viscerally repulsive to get to the end goal. And in Midsummer, it's actually not even quite as malicious as all that. It's, uh, it's, it's, a, you know, it's a different world system that's introduced. So, um, you know, and I'm trying not to do a spoiler review, but like, we'll get to it. I'll bring a bell in a minute. But if you, you know, if you're thinking about you know, whether you want to see the movie, I think what's interesting about it is that it really is a drama about characters who see the world differently and what that means and what tensions emerge from that. And I think that's a pretty appealing premise, broadly speaking. Um, I think that's about as much as I can say without spoilers. <laughs> I'm going to ring a bell and <laughs> then I'm going to talk about other things. Okay, so if you've seen the movie, hi, how are you? Um, <laughs> I hope you're doing well. I want to talk about some specific things for people who have seen the movie. If you have not seen the movie, please stop listening and go watch the movie and then come back and listen to this later. Um, some things I wanted to talk about in this movie that require me to talk about the specifics of plot. Ready? Okay. So um, one thing that I think really links her, uh, Hereditary and uh, Midsummer is this idea of, of that they're both strangely about grief. Um, and I think what's interesting is in Hereditary, it's a kind of involuntary grief. So in Hereditary, the whole movie really turns on, this is what I was referring to earlier, by the way, if you didn't catch this, um, the whole movie turns on, oh, this is, I guess, well, I guess I haven't told you that this is also spoilers for Hereditary. Well, this is also spoilers for Hereditary. So, you know, and if you're a horror movie fan, what are you doing if you haven't seen Hereditary uh, uh, or Midsummer? Go watch both of them. I don't know. Uh, I'm going to spoil Hereditary now, too. So if you don't want to know that either, then leave. Uh, but I, so the Hereditary turns around uh, the, the death of, of the daughter, right? The sort of shock death of the daughter, which, you know, for my money is like the, it's truly the only really 
uh, it's the most shocking moment I've seen in a movie in a very long time. I've often said as a sort of ridiculous film nerd that like, I would love to have been, you know, in, in 1960 to go watch Psycho before anyone knew what happened and see the shower scene, you know, with, uh, the, with all of, in all of these sort of like endless stories about all of the audiences losing their minds at the shower scene because they didn't know it was coming. I would love to have seen something, well, have seen that. Um, I, I, didn't, I didn't get to see that, but I feel like Hereditary comes the closest to doing something like that. And I don't know why it feels so big. It just, it... It just it feels so big of a, of a choice, and I think that the marketing did a great job, by the way, of not spoiling that choice at all. Um, but the death of the daughter is this, you know, catalyzing uh, moment of grief, and the whole movie really becomes, in a lot of ways, about the sort of grief for the daughter, which then becomes this whole other supernatural thing about legacies and families and doom and demons and all these you know, <laughs> many other fascinating things but i think ultimately what's really interesting about the difference between grief in hereditary and midsummer is that the grief in hereditary is totally involuntary like the death of the daughter is an accident and it's preordained by forces that uh, are beyond the control of all of the characters and a big factor in hereditary is you're kind of you're kind of doomed to live out the the sort of legacy of your family, and, and of course it takes on this metaphorical quality where the, the legacy in this case is demonic and supernatural, but it's ultimately a story about how we're we're kind of all doomed to take on the legacy of of our family. In Midsummer, the grief is basically in a lot of ways voluntary, and this is the interesting shift. I think it's really interesting anyway. In a lot of ways. And it starts from the beginning, right? Because the movie opens with a suicide. And a suicide is a kind of... It's a volu- it's, it's voluntary. And it's a, it's sort of a voluntary relinquishing or giving of one's life. And uh, it is different. It's altogether different as a tragedy, I think, than the, sh- the freak accident motivated by factors beyond this world. It's just a, a real choice that one person made that changes so much of the lives around her. Um, and Danny in Midsummer, who's played by Flor- Florence Pugh, who's amazing, I don't know that I've seen her in anything else, but she's so good, is having to cope with that choice of, right, like her sister killing herself and also killing their parents and making that choice. So it's not voluntary for Danny, but it was a voluntary choice by her sister. and. It's a, just a, t- a totally different kind of death to grieve, and I think that the, the the film does a really good job of playing with the complexity of that, especially as it bears out in this community in Sweden where they end up, wherein the giving of life is a sort of preordained practice, right? So in the community in Sweden, everyone kills themselves at 72 because there's an expectation that you, um, you've lived your life and your life needs to be given. Uh, and the difference of perspective between, uh, you know, in a kind of contemporary U.S. culture that says you fucking live until you can't live any fucking more, uh, and even then you mm, wait a little bit longer <laughs> until everything fails, uh, you know, versus a society that very affirmatively says um, you reach an age and it's time to go. And it's a great scene, by the way. The scene, the the first encounter, which is, by the way, I think the re- the first really grim horror scene in the whole movie of Midsummer. I'm talking about, where um, 
the that group of friends witness the sacrifice um and it's photographed uh viscerally um this was one of the more interesting audience reactions when that woman um jumps from the cliff and smashes on a rock people scream like people really scream I and mean, people really scream and not a troll not like a troll like uh like like not making fun of it or not 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 I don't know in my theater uh there were like actual involuntary screams and that's rare I don't have a lot of that in, in movie experiences I don't know about you but uh it it, the, it was really visceral and it really affected people but then I think what's great about Ari Aster in, in this movie is uh so there's something shocking and there's something horrific and it's and it as a scene of horror is is you know, excellent in the sense of execution, <laughs> although painful in the area of content. Um, but uh, it's followed by a really interesting intellectual question, which is, is this okay? And what do the characters do? And how do the characters feel about it? It's also distinctly and directly tied to the experience of Danny, the main character, right? Because she's coping with the fact of her sister's choice to kill herself and her parents. And she's now watching this all this other culture where um, people do this on the regular, right? People choose to leave. They choose to to uh, kill themselves at 72. And no one looks at it as a bad thing or, you know, a, a, a tragedy. It's looked at as a sort of affirmative, positive um, celebration of the end of life, which is a kind of terrifying duality to have to kind of look at what she she had lived through with her sister and also kind of reliving that or re-encountering that in this commune um so stuff like that is great stuff like that makes me so happy because it's it is horror it is scary it is uncomfortable it it is just executed so well as a shocking visceral moment but it is so deeply connected to the plot of the movie and the characters in the movie um, but ultimately, again, this movie feels to me that, that this and Retire are both about grief. And I think a really strong factor here is that the grief here is voluntary, right? And another thread of this um, is in the idea of that the movie is ultimately kind of a, about, from the beginning, Danny giving up uh, Christian, her boyfriend, right? Um, she doesn't feel supported by Christian. She is uh, uh, feels like an emotional burden to Christian. Uh, we see these great, great, I mean, great as in like well-acted, well-photographed. I don't mean great as in like fun to watch. Uh, phone conversations where she's talking to friends like, oh, I feel bad. I, I feel like I always rely on him. He's talking to his friends about how she's always relying on him. And um, and we it's established that they're sort of in a terrible relationship where he's not supportive of her and she doesn't really want to let him go. And that is just like there it's you know it's sort of established as if they would have broken up if not for the fact that she suffered a tragedy and then in the face of a tragedy they end up staying together longer and then they happen to go in this extended stay of the relationship to Sweden and then that changes everything I want to talk a little bit about the way that those uh, early scenes are photographed by the way um, I think that there's some really wonderful, brilliant visual choices here. I think uh, one thing is the, the long takes of 
the phone conversations, especially the first phone conversation where Danny is talking, it's 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 all one long shot. It's a really great performance by Florence Pugh. It's very close to her face. It's a really great introduction to a character because it's so much about their internal sensibility uh, and what is what is physically available to us in terms of visual information, in terms of the way her face looks and how she reacts. It's just, um, it is a very bonding, interesting moment. Um, I also want to point out, this is like actually fucking not important at all, but in the the cafe scene where she calls Christian, I just think it's so, this is a random aside, gay people will like this or care about this, I hope, which is, um, the photo up on the wall behind them is Sophia Loren and Jane Mansfield. And it's from, it's not the actual famous photo, but it's from a famous series of photos. Um, and I forget the actual location where they were, uh, where they were, um, but it was some sort of award show or premiere party or something. And there's a really famous photo of Jane Mansfield sitting there at the table with her breasts basically exposed. And there's like one inch of one nipple that's just like peeking out. And <laughs> Sophia Loren, who, you know, is a classic European film star, is just kind of looking at her uh, out of the side of her eye. It's like very much the definition of shade because it's not verbal. And in this photo, this, I don't know how long her face looked like this, but for the second they took that photo, her face looked at that nipple like, Girl. Anyway, uh, it was so. It's such a great. It's a great photo. Um, if you've not seen, you should Google. You know, Jane Mansfield plus Sophia Loren. Jane Mansfield. If you, if you don't know who those people are, I guess this is less interesting. But Jane Mansfield is a sort of bombshell, bombshell blonde of the 1950s in Hollywood, and Sophia Loren is a very classy uh, Italian film star. And uh, their temperaments did not uh, did not connect. Um, which maybe this is like a meta commentary. Everything in this <laughs> everything in this conversation I'm having is about. Temperaments being different and ideologies being different. Me and my professor, we were quite different. Jane Mansfield and Sophia Loren, quite different. The Swedes in this movie, who, you know, are a particular commune of Swedes, just to be clear, not all Swedish people, um, but the, Swede, the Swedish community in this movie and the Americans, not exactly compatible. <laughs> um... And I don't know that that photo is there on purpose at all. It could just have been what was in the cafe they were shooting at. But it's on screen for a solid one and a half frames. <laughs> um, I'm joking. That's not a real thing. Half frame. But it's on. It's on. It's on screen for a couple of seconds, let's say. And um, I just thought it was interesting. Um, so anyway, I, I like, so if you uh, pay attention to how the early shots are, I'd have to watch the movie again to say more about this, but just my first reaction of watching it was uh, how those early shots are filmed. There's a lot of long takes, which is to say an uninterrupted, you know, single take uh, without a cut. Um, and there's a lot of interesting choices about not, um, not cutting to the person who's speaking, which, you know, in a sort of commonly, uh, in a sort of conventional mainstream uh, set of choices abiding continuity editing, you usually do in a conversation scene, you'd usually film uh, a wide shot establishing position, and then you'd film, you know, both sides of the conversation. Um, in this movie, there's actually quite a lot in those early scenes where the whole scene is done in one shot, and the other participant in the scene is in a mirror reflection, possibly, to give them screen presence, but they are essentially omitted. Uh, so which brings us to the idea of mirrors, which is another interesting 
motif in the movie. So again, in these long take shots early in the movie, like uh, the most noticeable one is in the scene where Danny, uh, or is revealed to the group of friends, uh, Christian's friends, that Danny is coming with them to Sweden. Uh, that whole scene is done almost entirely on the shot of the group of friends. Uh, and Christian is off screen, but seen in the mirror reflection behind them. And so he has presence on screen, but he's not what the camera is looking at. Uh, but because he's in the mirror, you're able to have the sort of long take just of them talking and reacting to what he's saying. Uh, although, you know, interestingly and uniquely, I think, and outside of the sort of normative conventions of, of, of continuity editing, we don't actually cut to what, uh, we don't cut to the person who's speaking, which is just usually done because it makes a sort of logical sense to see the person who's speaking. Uh, although we do kind of see him in the reflection. Um, and this is done in a couple of other places. Um, it's done and there's a shot in, oh gosh, in one of their rooms where I think Danny's a reflection. There's a couple of scenes where mirrors are the only way that some number of the characters are available to us visually, uh, which is interesting. I think it happens mostly in the first half of the movie. And if you think about the first half of the movie, it's really about the isolation between characters, that the characters are not together, that the characters are not on the same page, that they are really a sort of disparate group of people who have a lot of underlying tensions uh, and that are being avoided, uh, which you know become a part of the problem later <laughs> uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, but if you think about that, just that sort of underlying idea, having the characters visually separate and, and not having the characters kind of come together and, and share the frame or be both equally visualized in the frame, I think works a lot. I think, I think those early scenes feel not like a very fun group of friends who get along. I think they feel like a very strange collection of people who are sort of fragmented and existing in this composite sense that is, is feasible, but it's not ideal. And, um, and I love too, so to take the, the extension of the mirror too, I love that later in the movie, the mirror becomes a source of horror in a more distinct way when they get to Sweden. So if you notice, there's two scares that are really mirror dependent. One is during the mushroom trip uh, where Danny goes on this walk through um, the forest and she finds a little shack and she goes into the shack and she lights uh, like a match or a candle, I can't quite remember. Uh, and there's just a flash of her in the mirror and behind her is in the mirror because she's tripping, uh, is uh, the, a really fast shot of her sister with the gas mask on her face that she used to kill herself. Uh, and it's just really, uh, it's small in the frame and it just pops up. And then, it, and then it goes, you know, and then she leaves, she blows out the, the match or the candle, whatever it was, and, and, you know, walks out of frame. But it's just a really quick visual scare that's dependent upon the mirror reflection, which the movie has kind of trained you to look for who's in the mirror because a lot of times the person in the mirror is the predominant speaker in the, in the, in the scene. Um, and, then, uh, and then there's the second, which is a more, much more prolonged one, which is when, um, oh gosh, the actor's name escapes me. Uh, it's William Jackson. Harper, is that right? Uh, he's the guy who plays Cheedy on The Good Place, <laughs> who's lovely in this movie and, uh, and does a great job. But he has a scene where he's like doing bad things and photographing their sacred book. And he's, you know, we're watching him photograph the sacred book. And of course, in front of him is this large reflective surface. I don't quite know if it's a mirror. It's a reflective surface, which we'll say is a mirror. Uh, and we see 
we see someone in the mirror walking in behind him. And that's fairly classic, but it because the whole movie has used mirrors in an interesting way, I feel like it really hits as uh, a terrifying climax where it's like, this is the the scariest extension of this uh, fragmented and, and disparate set of associations is not even knowing who's behind you. And it's long. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it is, it is a noticeably long shot of just the mirror reflection approaching. And it, it's how we see the approach is in the mirror. Uh, and of course the, it being in the mirror is uh, a way to indicate to us that he doesn't see it until it's too late. And then bad things happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I think I think the visual style of the movie is interesting. I don't I don't I really want to watch it again because I I, I actually don't want to watch it again because I don't really want to live through that again because it is a really tense movie. But I feel like the stuff in Sweden is less fragmented in the sense that the early stuff feels again like the characters are often not in the frame that they're sharing uh, a frame using some sort of composite of mirrors or that the take is like uncomfortably long and we're just sort of stuck with them. And in some senses it's personal because you get to know them, but also I think because we're so used to a fairly rapid editing style, we feel the length of the shot. You know, it sort of feels like we're just sort of staring at her on the phone. You know, we're, we're like, we're inescapably close to her on the phone. I think this stuff in Sweden, it just feels a bit more neutral and neutral is a terrible word, but um, <laughs> it doesn't tell you anything. But it feels like a more even pace with less uncomfortable moments in terms of the way they're put together visually, if that makes any kind of sense. I mean, the thing about the movie is that the the Swedish uh, stuff is filmed with a really gorgeous cinematography. Like, the color palette is warm and sunny and just, like, pastel pink and and yellow and and white. Like, those are the primary colors I associate with that particular space, right? There's just, like, pink flower trees that are, like, a soft pastel pink, and then uh, uh, everyone's wearing white, and there's just blue sky and, like, golden-hued mountains, and it's beautiful. And when you see the, um, the American tourists walk in, and they're sort of, like gap attire or they're like they're like ordinary they're like denim and like whatever like a khaki plaid situation it 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 literally looks like um it looks like the people in a museum walked inside of an oil painting <laughs> like, like a really gorgeous soft oil painting that just you know it looks like there's a kind of there's just a wrong human that is not in the color palette. And I love the way that looks. Like it's such a good feat. Like visually to see that you it it's it so strongly contrasts the unity of the space that they're entering into versus their lack of unity, right? Like the first half of the film is really under under underlining how uh, not unified, not together they are, and how disparate they all are, and how many undercurrents of tension there all are. Um, and then they walk into the space that's actually very like-minded, that's very uh, strangely kind of utopian, and everyone's wearing matching white, you know, garments, and uh, it looks like a very beautiful unified space with one color palette that everyone is wearing, and every like everyone fits in. Uh, and then there's all of this 
sort of distinct kind of individuated energy that comes from the American people who walk in. Now, whether the individuation is positive and like the absence of fascism <laughs> versus the kind of uniformity of the place they're walking into, I don't know. This feels like a, a probably a different conversation and a longer conversation. But I, I would say in one way to read that is at the very least, there is a very unified sense among the community that they walk into. There's a very um, samey quality in terms of ideology, in terms of aesthetic, in terms of everything. Uh, whereas the people walking in are disjointed, not unified, uh, tense and, and abrasive and, and really uh, coping with a lot of underlying issues and, and, and possibly very destructive relationships or kind of codependent relationships like Danny and Christian who probably should have broken up, but then, oh, well, her sister died. And how do you break up with someone when their sister died? And then how do you let go of someone when they're your only support for the fact that your sister died? And so... Um, we got this kind of collision between a sort of sameness and a kind of fractured mess. And I feel like the Swedish stuff is just more coherent. I don't think there's as many strange shots. There's fewer of those kinds of like composite shots where you don't see the characters talking. There's, um, there's just less, I, I feel like it's less visually pronounced and strange. Uh, which makes it kind of sense because it, it feels more harmonious visually, uh, whereas the early stuff feels much more fractured. Okay, so I wanted to talk briefly about, um, this was another audience reaction, by the way. So I've seen a lot of articles come around lately, and I don't know if it's because the movie didn't do all that great in the first weekend. But there's been a ton of um, stories about the nudity in the movie that's come forward. So um, it's like a ton of headlines. I, I think this is not just, maybe it's just my feed. Maybe the internet has worked this out, but I've just, I've just been fed so many stories about male nudity, I guess. Oh, I'm just thinking now that maybe the internet targeted me with those. <laughs> maybe, maybe you didn't get those. Maybe it's just my gay ass. Anyway, I, um, I've been targeted with a lot of headlines about the male nudity in this movie, and I think this is interesting for a lot of reasons, but one is because it's also just another strange reaction that happened to happen in, happened to happen, that occurred in my theater. But in the movie, there's a, it's a movie sort of ends in this orgy scene, or not, is, is it, is it quite an orgy? I don't know. I guess not. I guess it's a sort of sex scene with voyeuristic onlookers. Uh, but there's a sort of ritualistic sex scene, and uh, it's a room full of nude women, about 20 nude women, and the and Christian walks in um, in a robe, looking fairly protected <laughs> and less vulnerable than the entire room of 20 women who all have their vaginas out, and um, and there you know it sort of gets to a moment where it's like, are they or aren't they going to remove the robe? <laughs> And it feels precarious in the context that, like, there has been much conversation about the uh, abundance of female nudity in movies versus the relative lack of male nudity. And a lot of creatives have made the effort to push for male, more male nudity in their films. And so you get to this juncture where there's, like, 20 naked women on screen and there's a man in a robe. And you think, okay, well, is this going to be one of those where men have modesty and women are forced to be fully naked. Uh, and he does, he does, he does very, you know, very honestly remove the robe and is, is fully naked. And, um, the woman behind me in the theater, uh, I don't know, you know, I don't know. 
I caught this. I don't know how much it, it traveled around the room, but the woman behind me in the theater fully at that moment where he drops his robe and you see his penis, she literally just said quietly to herself, yes. And I don't know. <laughs> I still don't know if that's yes. Like, I've been waiting to see his dick the whole movie. Or if it's like, yes, like feminism. Like, we... <laughs> We should have, there should be equal male nudity to female nudity, and we're looking at, you know, 20 vaginas, and, like, clearly you should not obscure the one penis in the room. Um, and, you know, maybe it's a little bit of both. I, I, don't, I don't really know, but it was really funny. It, it just, you know, male nudity still gets a reaction, which I think is an interesting topic. I think it... It, I think if it gets a reaction, it's always going to be interesting because it means that people are affected by it. I have, I had one really uh, strange experience <laughs> with a kind of comparable situation, which was that um, when I saw Under the Skin, if you haven't seen Under the Skin, by the way, with Scarlett Johansson, great movie, uh, I, I would call it horror. It's sci-fi, but also really kind of uh, a, a sort of like a mesmeric trance film full of... Uh, like body horror that I think is really interesting. And um, uh, I went to see that movie in Chicago. I was in Chicago for a conference. Uh, and I went to one of these like art house theaters inside of a multiplex. It was sort of like a conjoined situation. And um, what I think would probably be really great. And I imagine that many of the accidents that happen there are happy like people wander into art house films thinking like oh this is a new movie and then they enjoy it hopefully a lot but also it seems to me like probably a lot of people go to see a movie on the marquee because it's like a big multiplex that has all the movies and they walk in not having prepared themselves for something that's sort of like abstract or esoteric and um and and a lot of uh probably a lot of anger <laughs> I think I think there's a lot of people who walk into movies that they probably are not mentally prepared to see, um, just meaning that they had just expected a different kind of experience from it. And, uh, and, and I had one of those experiences watching Under the Skin where a woman walked in, and she identified herself as a problem from the beginning. Like, she fully walked in. First of all, she smelled like all of the perfume in the world. Like, she either... Um, <laughs> she, it's like she either took the bottle of her perfume and, like, smashed it on the floor and then danced in the shards, or she had just gone to the mall and tried everything. But, I, you know, and I, I really don't... I don't usually like to point out people's smell, but I feel like she did this to herself, so it was a choice. Um, but she, it's just, and it's also important because it was one of those things, if you've ever been in a movie theater where someone walks in and it's, they are just become part of the show in a way that we can't, none of us can undo the sort of, the way that they are sort of announcing themselves and calling attention. She, she just called attention to herself. Um, and she also, I think was just not, she just wasn't prepared for the movie she was seeing and didn't wanted something else, which is fine. You know, she wanted a different experience and it was, uh, you know, it's a fairly experimental film and, uh, you know, there's like a great early moment where there's a, the first shot, I think, fuck, it's the first shot, I think, is like a bulb flickering, and then the bulb burns out, and then there's just darkness for five seconds, and fully in those five seconds, uh, she, uh, just said plain as day, not in a whisper, just in a, a normal speaking voice, what happened? You know, and, but everyone heard it, and then people started laughing. So she just sort of became this like in this part of like in, uh, there was the movie, which I loved. I love Under the Skin. 
Uh, but then there was also the layer of strange commentary with this confused woman who clearly didn't want to be in this movie. And, uh, but, uh, the perfume woman, uh, <laughs> but when we got, there's a, so in the movie, uh, Scarlett Johansson basically seduces men and lures them back to her lair. She's an alien. Oh, but she's an alien. So Scarlett Johansson plays an alien who sort of picks up men and brings them back to her lair. Uh, and which is basically like a big goo puddle. It's visualized that way anyway. Uh, and she brings them to the goo puddle and then they seem to sort of implode and it somehow suggests that she's driving energy from the the men in the, her goo puddle. But um, but uh, the men who get, get brought into the goo are are naked because they're partly because it's sort of like a sensual exchange and then also because it's um, goopy. So uh, so <laughs> anyway, there's there is a lot of male nudity in that movie. Uh, and the first time there's a naked like um, you, the first time you see a penis in the movie, this the perfume woman fully at normal speaking volume said clear as day the whole room heard uh oh a wiener just like just no <laughs> she was it was a un, she was unable to internalize that thought and then people are like like sort of tittering and laughing and um it didn't really ruin the movie for me because it was just this other strange story that was happening in the room uh so she you know she says oh a wiener a wiener she's very very uh I don't think it was a bad reaction. It was just a huh, and then um and then later in the movie, there's another naked man, and and the two men actually sort of meet each other, and it's sort of obviously visually apparent that one of them has sort of a larger penis than the other, and then <laughs> the perfume woman said, "Clear as day, the whole room heard her say, oh, a big one.' Um, so <laughs> so this a big one. Anyway, uh." I, this was not quite that. It was less disruptive than that. But I did get a I did get a strong re there was a strong reaction to the dickage in this movie. So I think it's interesting. I mean, I think the and, and Christian uh, the, the uh, what's his name Jack Rayner who plays Christian uh, did, gave interviews in all these articles I've been targeted with um, uh, <laughs> uh, where he talks about the fact that the, the movie's so uncompromising in the way it visualizes everything, including the violence that it seems like a total cop-out to not have the nudity. And it's an interesting thought. I mean, I think the way that violence and nudity and sex and everything, you know, taboo in the movie works is, I think it is all very, it's all attempting to be very forthright and transparent and not look away from the violence. It's, it's I think it is violent. Um, but I also think that, like, when I described the earlier scene of the the sacrifice on the cliff, like, the film does an incredible job, I think, of making all of those things important to plot and important to character. Um, and so I don't think it feels icky. It, it certainly feels uncomfortable in some ways, uh, especially the violence to me. But, um, but I, you know, I've fully turned movies off because I think they're too violent. Um, and... I wouldn't have, I didn't have that feeling watching this. Like, I don't want to, you know, sometimes I see horror movies that are so violent and purposelessly violent that I just think, I don't want to have that experience. Uh, I didn't have that thought watching this movie. I thought it was uh, certainly visceral, but um, I, you know, I think the best compliment I can really give to the movie is that I, uh, I watched it and I enjoyed it and, well, I was, I was interested in it, and I don't know if it was joy, but I was interested, and I cared, and I, I followed, and I was 
excited by it, but I, I didn't I didn't think at the end that I had like any if I could have uh, if I could muster a corrective energy to say, well, I would have preferred if this or this didn't happen. Uh, I sort of totally stymied that in my person because it just seemed like everything was exactly as it was intended to be. And I wouldn't fuck with it for anything, which I think is a, a pretty good compliment for a movie where it's just like, well, I don't know what my feeling is about this, that, or the other, but I don't think everything seemed so calibrated that I can't, I wouldn't ever say it should have been different or other than what it is. And I, and I, and I want to get to just quickly the, the, the end of the movie here, um, which is, also, I think, really about grief and, again, the voluntary, like, the grief around voluntary choices or um, and also about the sort of disparity of ideology. Um, yeah, I'm going to get to both of these things. So the ending is a choice, right? So the ending of the movie, essentially, is that Danny has to choose whether to kill Christian because he is probably not been a supportive human to her is a sort of dependent connection that she has uh, and has had a massive sex orgy with the entire village. <laughs> you know, st- things happen, mom. Okay, so anyway, uh, uh, you know, she has to choose whether she, whether, you know, whether to essentially terminate the codependency, which she, we, which we met her talking about how she can't terminate the codependency, right? And so the whole, the whole, the movie comes, the movie comes back in the end to what it was about in the beginning. This is because, you know, this is why I don't, I don't have any energy to correct because it's just like, this is a well done, this is a well constructed movie. The ending goes back to the beginning. It is, it has always been a movie about severing the codependency and about the difference of perspectives that allow for that to happen or not to happen. And in the end, she chooses to kill him or to sacrifice him as part of the larger sacrifice that happens as a positive life-affirming celebration in this Swedish commune, which has accepted violence as part of their self-sustaining ideology. And I think part of why she can do that is really if you look at the two representations of her grief. The first shot, which is um, this really fast-moving tracking shot, where the camera pushes in on her crying in Christian's lap on a sofa after she's learned that her sister is dead and her parents are dead. Uh, and if you, that's actually, I believe the shot right before the credits. So you have a shot of her crying on the sofa, wailing, uh, and Christian just kind of holding her a tad indifferent. And the camera sort of zooms in and goes past them on the sofa into the window and through the window to the snow, um, to the snow outside. And then I think cuts into credits on the snow shot. Um, That's like a really cold representation of grief, right? Like she is red hot, emotional, crying, but his reaction to her is fairly mild. And the camera's reaction to her is to go past her and almost to ignore her. And the camera kind of participates in the diminishment and ignorance of her grief. In the end, when she sees Christian in this sex, uh, ritualistic sex experience that is heartbreaking for her and she grieves it, uh, she's surrounded by women uh, and they're all sort of together and she's also kind of wailing and they all wail back at her. It's this responsive, reactive, kind of meeting her at her level of grief. Uh, and 
she has the experience that she wants. Um, and whether that's like the right thing, I don't know. I, who the fuck knows? I don't know. Uh, but it's the experience that she wants, right? It's someone treating her grief seriously and meeting her on that level and giving her a reaction to that grief. Uh, and if you take, think about how the camera works there, I mean, the camera's fairly close. It's shots of the women, shots of her, shots of them in the same frame together, screaming together. It's it's not the same, even remotely, as the camera sort of zooming past her uh, in her moment of grief. Um, the camera's much more, it's much closer, it's much more about a togetherness. It's, 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 it's really kind of her transition from being the sort of outside American to the person who really moves to the center of the community uh, and becomes one with the community such that when we get back to the choice about severing the codependency, which we had at the beginning, we get a different outcome, which is that she does sever the codependency, she does let this man die, uh, and she smiles at the end of the movie in a very dark moment that is hard to read, except to say that it seems to express the full conversion of an ideology such that the death here is an affirmative uh, aspect of life in the way that the choice for the elders to give up their lives was, in the way that um, all of this ritualistic violence has been construed by the people in the community. Um, so though the Americans were very off-put and, and, and uh, uh, terrified, and, and though I think we as an audience are quite off-put and terrified, uh, the community has always seen these things as very positive. And here at the end, kind of fully integrated into the community and reciprocated in, in terms of her grief and her what she wants in terms of her emotions, uh, she has this smile. So the 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 violence, the the conversion of the character is reflected in her transition in her relationship to this ritualistic violence, which is to say that at this moment she's fully um, assimilated into the community, and part of that is celebrating the affirmative quality of sacrifice of life, which is the thing that she mourned so much at the beginning of the movie with the suicide of her sister. Uh, but here she's the one making the choice to sacrifice. I think that's what I have to say about this movie. And I should stop now. I really love this movie. This is my opinion part. I love the movie. It's really good. <laughs> Isn't that boring? Okay, so I said a whole bunch of other things I think are more interesting than whether I liked it or not, but I did love it. And if you haven't seen it, go see it. Well, hopefully, if you hadn't seen it, you stop listening. But if somehow you're still here, sorry. But also, um, go see it. It's really great. I love this movie. And I, I, I would love for... for if you're a horror fan, I think you should see this movie because it will be a movie that will end up on every list of the best horror movies of the year. And I think you should at least have the ability to add to the conversation. Or, no, you should have. Should is a bad word. Um, I, as a person who loves horror movies, really feel, felt like and still feel like it's important to have seen something that is going to be so integrally important to the way we talk about horror all year. Um, and it's worth seeing. It's a great movie. Okay, so that's that. I'm going to try really hard to see Crawl next week, and I'm going to try to give some comments on Crawl. I think, hopefully, I'll have shorter comments. Uh, <laughs> but maybe not. We'll see. I, I don't know. I can't predict. But um, if you made it to all the way to the end of this, uh, thank you so much. Uh, and I just, most importantly, have one more thing to tell you, which is that it is contagious, and we do recruit, so you're totally gay now. Bye!